Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. Mark chapter 12. We'll read there in a few moments. Mark chapter 12. All right, so at our house, Lindsay and I have this coffee table book. It usually doesn't sit on our coffee table, but it's a coffee table book called My Last Supper. In it, a photographer has gone around to 50 celebrated chefs and taken portraits of them and asked them, what would your last meal be? So this is a common thing that chefs do, especially after a long shift. You're sitting around together with other chefs. You've been working a long day on your feet, hot, sweaty, tired. What would your last meal be as a chef? So these people that generally spend their entire day cooking and serving for other people finally get a chance to be introspective and say, hey, what would, what would I like to be served as a last meal. So this is something very common that happens in kitchens. And this is very similar to what we're going to see today. So one of my favorite chefs in this book, his name is Martin Picard. Martin is in French Canada. He's in Quebec. And his restaurants are known for their absolute indulgence in the greatest and richest and heaviest flavors in classical French cuisine. He uses butter and foie gras and truffles to season his dishes the same way that my kids use ranch dressing. It is absolutely over the top on everything that they do. But his portrait in this book looks a lot different than you would expect a fine chef in these fine restaurants to look. So he is out in the middle of the snowy, bleak winter woods by himself, He's got old, dirty blue jeans on. He's wearing black rubber boots. He's got a red flannel shirt on. He's got a shotgun propped over one arm and a dead goose from the morning's hunt in his other hand. And so he said in his last meal, it would be set in those woods and that among other things, that goose would be served. It would be roasted, thinly sliced, marinated in oil and vinegar and juniper berries, and that's it. Just very simple country down-home cuisine that if you lived in that area where he is, you've likely had some some dish very similar to that hundreds of times in your life. So similar to that, in today's text in Mark, we have a scribe, a Jewish law expert, who is asking Jesus, what's the most important law or most important command? This is a question that he and his scribe friends have probably thrown around with each other at all of their scribe parties that they have. And they talk about this. What's, hey, what's, the, what's the number one law? What's the, if you only had one law that you could keep, which one is the number one? Which is the most important? So in Jesus' answer is very similar to this fine dining, award-winning chef wanting a simple country dinner for his last meal. Jesus takes the scribe and he takes us back to the very basics of the faith, the very foundation onto which all the other laws are built. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 12 and stand with me as we hear from the word of God this morning. We'll start in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up 
And he heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. Please be seated. All right, so there's three words that I want to zoom in on from this passage this morning to guide our walk through this passage. Three words. Number one, listening. Word number one, listening. Number two, loving. And number three, entering. So listening, loving, and entering. I tried hard. I couldn't find another L word that fit. All right, so word number one, listening. So to answer the scribe's question about which is the greatest, which is the first, which is the most important commandment, Jesus refers him back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, to a section of scripture known in Jewish tradition as the Shema. Now the word Shema means to listen or to hear. It's the first word of this verse in Hebrew. So it says Shema, O Israel. Hear, listen, O Israel. Now, the Shema, this prayer, was recited by faithful Jews twice a day, morning and evening, as a sort of summary prayer of what it was that they believed as Jewish people. So these verses would have been very familiar to the scribe and to anyone who grew up in a Jewish household. But the Shema in Hebrew means more than just to hear. It's more than just sound waves entering into your ears. To Shema in Hebrew is to hear and then to act accordingly. To Shema is to do what is being said. Interestingly, there's no word in Hebrew meaning to obey or to obey something or to do something like that. So you either Shema or you don't. So you either hear and obey, or you didn't hear at all. So this idea is true throughout the Bible. So when people ask God to hear their prayers, to hear their cries for mercy, to hear their anguish, to hear the blood of the innocent crying up from the ground, they don't want God to have sound waves enter his ears. They want God to act. They want God to do something, to hear and to act on it, to do something to get them out of their trouble. 
So that's to Shema. Shema is to hear. This is covenant-keeping language. This is asking God to hear you. It's asking him to be faithful to his promises, that he will be there when you call on him, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. So when Jesus is answering the scribe by quoting the Shema, he's inviting the scribe not only to hear what is coming up next, but also to listen and obey, to put into physical action the things that are coming up next. So Trinity, this morning, hear what Jesus says next. So that's number one, listening. Number two, loving. Number two, loving. Let's look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's several ways listed here that we are to love according to this great commandment. So to get a better grasp about, about what it is Jesus is saying here, you have to think like a biblical Hebrew would think. So let's do that for a second. Let's put on our Jewish hats and let's think like a Hebrew person. So number one, we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our heart. Now, heart, your heart in Hebrew culture is where you know things. Not in your brain. They don't have an idea about what goes on in your brain. So they, you know in your heart. You have understanding of things in your heart. You have wisdom in your heart. You discern truth from error in your heart. So what we in Carrierville in 2022 would say are things that all go on in your brain. In Hebrew thought, in Hebrew culture, all of this happens in your heart. So when the greatest commandment says to love the Lord with all of your heart... It's really a call for you to reorient your mind, reorient how you think, reorient what you know is true all around what God says is good and what God says is right and what God says is true. But there's also some similarities in how our cultures both talk about the heart. In Hebrew thought, you also have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. You have joy in your heart. You also have pain and fear in your heart. You make choices in your heart. It seems good to you to do this or to do that in your heart. So it's not just intellectual things that happen in your heart. So when we, when we are called to love with our whole heart, we also turn all of these emotions over to God as well. We have joy in the Lord. We are fearful, but we run to God for his comfort. We still have pain, but we seek healing from the Lord. We make plans and decisions and choices, but we know that they only come to happen if the Lord wills. So first, we are called to love the Lord with all of our hearts, intellectually and emotionally. 
Remember, this is not just something that you are to hear as words going into your ears. This is something that is supposed to have actions that back it up. So we're going to look at those in just a minute, but for now. So that's what it means to love with your heart. Second, we're called to love with all of our soul. To love God with our soul. So after we love with all of our intellect, with all of our emotions, we're now commanded to love with our soul. And this adds a physical dimension to our love. Keeping with a, let's think like a Hebrew strategy for just a minute. This is how the Bible talks about this word soul. In Song of Songs, it repeatedly uses the phrase, the one that my soul loves, to talk about this love and relationship between a man and a woman. And this makes sense because loving another person is not simply an intellectual idea in your brain. So I don't just know that I love my wife or think about loving my wife in my head. It's also not just an emotional concept. I don't just love my family when I feel like loving my family, when I'm happy, when everything is going well. But it's more than both of those things. So it's like in Psalm 42, they use this word. It says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Yes, there is an intellectual side of this. If I am the deer, I know I'm thirsty. But there's also this physical side to it. There's this physical ache. There's a physical longing. There's a physical pain when water is not there and you are thirsty. So when we're commanded to love God with all of our souls, it's everything that we talked about with your heart, your intellect, and your emotions, and it's your physical self as well. It's your very essence of who you are is called to love the Lord. So hear this, Trinity. We are called to love the Lord with our souls, with our whole physical beings as well. And then the third thing, we're finally called to love the Lord with our mind and our strength. Now, wait a second. Doesn't that seem to cover a lot of how a Hebrew person would think about their heart and their soul again, your mind and your strength? The answer is yes, because this word that Jesus is using here that comes from the Hebrew word, it's a little difficult to get across in English. Some of this gets lost in translation when you try to take this Hebrew word and put English words to figure out what does this actually mean. So let's do a little digging this morning. So this word that the Bible translators use Literally, it means very or much. So literally, this verse is telling us that we are commanded to love the Lord with all of our very muchness, which is a strange saying in English, but I think we kind of get the idea of what they're getting at. So there's three places that the Bible uses this word that I want to look at to help us see it. So when God creates the world, in five days, he finishes and says, this is good. It's all that he made and he called everything good. But on the sixth day, after he creates humanity, he says that this is very good. It's that same word. It's very good. In the story of Noah, when the flood waters are coming up over all of the earth, the waters are said to be extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. That extremely is the same word. 
And finally, Cain and Abel. When Cain gets angry, he doesn't get just angry. The Bible says he gets very angry, very angry. All three of these use this same word that Jesus is talking about here. It's this idea of taking something up to the next level. Take it up a notch to the most extreme amount possible. So we're called to love the Lord with all of our mind and strength, with all of our very muchness to the most extreme and highest degree possible. So what's the most important commandment? You should love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with your mind and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is Jesus, he's always a very generous person. We get a two-for-one discount on what the most important commandment is. The most important commandment is to, number one, love the Lord and love your neighbors. So the most important commandment, love the Lord and love your neighbors. So here's where things start to get practical. So remember, really hearing is all about putting things into action. So how can we best see someone who loves the Lord. It's by looking at how they treat other people, other images of God in the world. This is where you prove that you actually hear what this commandment is saying. If you were thirsty, you naturally go and get yourself something to drink. It should be, according to Jesus, just as natural for you to see someone else thirsty and get them a drink as well. Love them like you love yourself. Now, I grew up in the church. I'm very thankful for that. And I've heard about this idea countless times for my entire life. Love other people the way that you love yourself. But this is still one of the most difficult things that I deal with. So how many hours during a day do I sit on my couch and dream of all the cool trips that I want to take and dream of all the cool gear that I'll need to go on those cool trips and all of the effort in planning and preparing and dreaming to make something like that happen for me? And yet to love my neighbor as I do myself, means that I should spend just as much time dreaming of things that others want as well. How can I support other people and their dreams and their plans and their dreams for other people and not just what I want? And if I'm not being convicted enough this week by noticing how much time I actually spend thinking about myself, then I remember who my neighbors are that Jesus is calling me to love. So remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Who was a neighbor to this man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road? Who was a neighbor to this man, his cultural enemy? was the one who had mercy on him. You see, our neighbors these people that we are supposed to love, this greatest commandment, according to Jesus, it does include those people that live close to us on our streets. They go to our schools. They work in our businesses. They drive cars that look like ours. They look a lot like us and dress a lot like us. And loving those people can be very challenging and very difficult 
but please don't leave here this morning thinking that those are the only neighbors that Jesus is concerned with you loving. Don't even the tax collectors love those that love them? But I say, says Jesus, to love your enemies. And this is also part of the greatest commandment, to love difficult people. So Trinity, hear this this morning. Listen to the words of our Lord. And so after hearing this, the scribe agrees with Jesus. That's usually a pretty good move. So verse 32, look back at verse 32. The scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So that gets us to our last word this morning, word number three, entering. So we've been through listening and loving, word number three, entering. So notice what Jesus says in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, there's no Jewish word or a cultural difference to know here. There's just a little closer reading I want to do in this verse. If you are not far from somewhere, are you there? No. If I'm not far from Carrierville, am I in Carrierville? No, you're not in Carrierville. So if you are not far from the kingdom of God, are you in the kingdom of God? No. So this scribe appears to come to Jesus with a legitimate question. Jesus isn't angry with him when he asks. He receives an answer from Jesus, and he agrees with the answer. And Jesus even says, hey, you have answered wisely. So why isn't this scribe in the kingdom of God? Why is he not far, but not in the kingdom of God? So this scribe has to enter the kingdom of God the same way that anyone else does, by faith. So there's no amount of knowledge in your head or emotions in your heart or longings in your soul that can cause you to enter the kingdom of God apart from faith. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that it's for by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Trinity, if you are not in his kingdom this morning. Please hear this. Please listen and act. There is no amount of loving others or good works that you can do to get into the kingdom, even if you are not far from it. But if you are in the kingdom of God, please hear this morning. Please listen to these words from the Lord. Love the Lord with all of your heart, 
and with all of your soul and with all of your very muchness. And here is why. We'll close with this. We are called to hear and to listen when the Lord speaks because he listens to his children and acts on their behalf. We're called to love the Lord because he first loved us. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. So we're called to love our neighbors, even our enemies, because without the Lord reaching out to us in love and grasping a hold of our cold and dead hearts, we would go through this life with no hope. But because we have been given a hope, we reflect that love out to others, to our neighbors, and love them. So Trinity, hear and know how greatly you have been loved this morning. You pray with me. Father in heaven, would you help us to hear and to begin to understand how great your love for us is this morning. Would you take our hearts of stone and give us new hearts of flesh? Would you write your words on our hearts so that we can keep your commands, keep even this greatest commandment? God, help us to love you and be faithful to you Help us to love others, to love difficult people in a way that makes us look more and more like Jesus and less and less like ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.